0: Good morning, everyone. So glad to see you all. Welcome to our worship service this morning. Uh, it is a communion Sunday, and so we're going to, in our worship time, focus on the mercy and the grace that God extended to you and to me by sending his Son. So let's start that by standing, if you're able, and let's sing first the song Wonderful, Merciful Savior.
1: Be seated. <clears throat> good, good morning. Good to have you join us here this morning at Free Lake Evangelical Free Church. If you're visiting or new, my name is Tim. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's, it's a joy to gather with all of you this morning as we we celebrate um, what God has done for us in in Jesus. So, would you start our time by worship or by praying with me? Father as we as we just sang like you you are the one that our that our hearts hunger for that we that we need and so we, we come before you this morning we praise you we, we honor you we want to glorify you for all that you've done for us in Jesus that even when we are weak even when we fail, Jesus was faithful on our behalf, we can gather this morning, those of us who have placed our faith in you, knowing that we are forgiven, that we are right before you, because of your great mercy and grace towards us. And God, would the, the truth of that reality, would that stir our hearts this morning, that as we sing, as we hear Your Word, as we reflect on what You've done for us, that it would move us, that it would compel us to worship You. Would we never cease being amazed at what a great God You are, what an amazing Savior Jesus is. God, would that move us to worship You and to love others well, to serve others and to desire to honor God and honor you with our lives. We pray for those in our church family this morning who are struggling with various ailments, whether it's physical ailments or it's just being in a hard place emotionally. God, that you would be with them, that you would bring comfort to those. Oh, you pray for all that's going on in the world, all the signs of the brokenness going on around us, God, that You would be at work to bring about Your good purposes even in the midst of hardship and trial and difficulty, that You would make Your glory evident even through all the brokenness we see around us. We pray for those who are wrestling with that brokenness, that You would be with them that you will give them comfort and strength to endure all that they are going through. So you be glorified this morning. As we come and we worship you. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we go back to singing some more worship, just a couple of announcements I want to draw your attention to. So one is coming up. The 4th of July this year is on a Sunday. And so we will have a worship service on Saturday night, July 3rd at 6.30, and no service on the morning of July 4th. So we invite you to join us on the 3rd at 6.30. But on the 4th, we want to be able to bless our town, bless our communities. And so a way we want to do that is by passing out water uh, during the 4th of July parade or before the 4th of July parade. And so two ways you can help with that, one, you can donate, just Water, bottles of water to the church that we can pass out. So you can just drop those off, bring them to the church with you, drop them off outside the office. We would be thankful for that. Or you can help us by like, volunteering to distribute water on before the parade on the 4th. And so If you want to do that, you can contact the church office. Another way you can, at the afternoon, to volunteer and to serve here is through um, just helping set up coffee on, on Sunday mornings. JP and the Bodie's have been doing a great job of getting coffee ready for us. We're looking for a few more people who can come alongside and help and maybe like once a month set up the coffee. And if nothing else, if you volunteer to do that, like that'll make you my favorite person that morning. So you have that going for you, if nothing else. Right. And then we also have VBA come up at the end of July. We volunteer for that. You can talk to Sherilyn if you want to serve our children in our community in that way let's enter into the time of worship.
0: So one of the themes of of the sermon today will be that Jesus is a friend for sinners. Let me just read a passage of Scripture from John chapter 15. This is Jesus in a long um, session that he had speaking directly to his disciples. Listen to this word from the Lord. I have loved you even as the Father has loved me. I want you to remain in my love. When you obey my commandments, you remain in my love, just as I obey my Father's commandments and therefore remain in His love. I have told you these things so that you will be filled with my joy. Yes, your joy will overflow. This is my commandment. Love each other in the same way I have loved you. There is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you slaves because a master doesn't confide in his slaves. Now you are my friends since I have told you everything the Father told me. You didn't choose me. I chose you. I appointed you to go and produce lasting fruit so that the Father will give you whatever you ask for Using my name. So this is my command. Love one another, parentheses, as I have loved you. Let's continue our worship. If you would stand with us. Let's sing His mercy is more.
2: some thrown into us tender is on us. His blood was the payment. His life was the cost. We
1: Father, Your grace truly is amazing. Would we not lose sight of that amazingness? Would we never forget why Your grace is so amazing? That we are utterly in need of Your grace, that without Your grace, we would be without hope. Would we... We continually remember what is so amazing about grace, and we not lose sight of that. Praying in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. You may remember a few months ago, Nolan Brooke, Vanderpog were here. They're missionaries we support at the church, and they had announced at that point that they were expecting their first child, and so we just want to let you know that they did have that child, that baby Silas is born and doing healthy, and so we want to celebrate that with them. So, during the 1989 NCAA men's basketball tournament, Georgetown was one of the heavy favorites in that tournament. In fact, they were such a heavy favorite that TV commentator Dick Vitale. He was he was so confident they would win their first round game against Princeton that he said that he would wear a Princeton cheerleaders outfit if Princeton won that game. Like he was just totally confident Georgetown is going to win this game, and he had good reason to be confident. Georgetown was a number one seed in the tournament, Princeton with a 16 seed. At that point in history, no 16 seed had ever beaten a number one seed in a NCAA tournament game. Princeton had won 10 fewer games that year despite the fact that they played far weaker competition. It's so like no one expected Princeton to win. In fact, Princeton's own coach said that he would put the odds of them beating Georgetown at 450 million to one. Right? And so, like, Vital had reason to be confident. Like, his reasoning was sound. And so he made this statement. I'll wear a Princeton cheerleader outfit if they win. That's how confident he was. So then the game started. But Georgetown, like, could not pull away. In fact, Princeton led 29-21 at halftime. And like, just imagine Vital in that moment. Like, he had been so sure Georgetown was going to win. And he had to, like... Be having some doubts now, like some things that happened that had caused his confidence to wear away. And the game remained close throughout the second half. And with 15 seconds left, Princeton had the ball and trailed by only one point. They were one basket away from pulling off one of the biggest surprises in all of sports history. And I just like think about like what Metz has been going through in his head at that moment. Like, he's one basket away from having to wear a cheerleader outfit. Like, he had to be like, how can I get out of this? Like, what? How can I back out? Like, his confidence had to be nearly gone. Events had unfolded that made him lose all his confidence, right? His confidence had eroded. And so, Princeton's one shot away from glory. They bring the ball down the court. First, they shoot, and the ball goes out of bounds. Then, with five seconds left, they get or what? one second left, they get one more shot at it, they inbound, put up a shot, miss. Right? And Georgetown escapes. They get the victory. They escape the embarrassment of being the first 16 seed to lose to a number one seed. And Vital escapes the embarrassment of wearing a cheerleader outfit. And thinking, But he had just been so sure, so confident before that game started. But then events slowly unfolded in a way that made him lose some of that confidence. And maybe you've been in a similar situation in your own life. Or you've been so confident of something at some point. So sure of something at some point. And then events play out that cause you to lose some of that confidence. And in today's passage in Luke chapter 7, John the Baptist is going to find himself in one of those situations. This is the John who once said, of Jesus, He says, John says, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So John says, there's one to come after me who is greater than I. And then he baptized Jesus, and at that baptism he says this. He says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, This is the one I meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. John was confident. John was sure that Jesus was God's chosen one, that Jesus was the one who is to come. Then the story continues. And something happens that causes John's confidence to erode. And so in this passage, John sends some of his followers to Jesus and they ask him a question. They ask, are you the one who is to come? John had confidently declared that Jesus was the one who is to come. And now his confidence is fading. And he asked, asked the question, are you the one who is to come? Like, are you the Messiah, Jesus? Like, like, what could have happened that made John lose that confidence? And that question, right? Are you the one who is to come? Is Jesus the Messiah? It's a question we all must answer in our own lives. Do we believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world? And for many of us who are here, at one point in our life, we confidently answered yes to that question. Like we were sure, we are sure that John, Jesus is the Messiah, the one who is to come, the one who takes away our sin. Just like John was confident at one point in that answer. But also for many of us, there have been times when we, like John, have questioned our certainty on that issue, when we've had our doubts. When we've had moments where we've wondered, like, is Jesus really who he claims to be? Or maybe there's some of you here who you've never made a decision about what you believe about Jesus. You've, you've never really felt the confidence that Jesus is God's long-promised Messiah, the one who can take away your sins. Like in either case, whether you've gone through periods of doubt or you've never decided in the first place, my hope is that you'll leave here either reassured or convinced for the first time that Jesus is a friend of sinners and he is the one who is to come. And we'll get to that friend of sinners part towards the end of the sermon. But first, Jesus is going to respond to John's question. He could seek to reassure John that he really is indeed the one who is to come. But before we get to how Jesus answered, let's let's take a closer look at John's question. We pick up the story in Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 18. John's disciples told him about all these things. And these things are what we heard about last week, that Jesus had healed by the power of his word from a distance, and he had raised someone from the dead. So Jesus is doing these incredible acts. And these incredible acts bring that question back to John's mind. So he sends disciples, and they ask him the question. So John calls two of his disciples, and he sent them to the Lord to ask, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? When the men came to Jesus, they said, "John John the Baptist sent us to ask, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? So, John sends some disciples and they ask him this very important question Are you the one who is to come? If you're thinking through this, you might think for yourself, like, the first question that pops in your head may be, like, well, why did John send disciples to ask this question? Why didn't John ask the question himself? This seems like a really important question. Doesn't John want to ask it face to face, person to person, to Jesus? and I'm sure John would have loved to ask face-to-face. Unfortunately for John, it's not an option. John is in prison at this time, so he couldn't ask Jesus for himself. He's in prison in one of Herod's dungeons, so he can't ask the question face-to-face. In fact, it seems likely that John's imprisonment is is part of the reason behind this question. If you think way back, Luke chapter 4 When Jesus is just starting, he had his first public ministry act, where he preaches in a synagogue and he reads from the book of Isaiah where it's written, He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners. And then Jesus says, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And so Jesus, in that moment, was claiming to be the Messiah. And part of the Messiah's ministry was to set prisoners free. But in that time, from John the Baptist's perspective, things had gone in the wrong direction. He had gone from not in prison, when Jesus said that, to in prison. And you can imagine how that would cause doubt to creep into John's mind. Like, are you really the one who's going to set the prisoner free? Except he hadn't noticed. I wasn't in prison before. I am now. Like This doesn't seem right. And beyond his personal imprisonment, John had other reasons to question whether Jesus was the Messiah. Jesus was not the type of Messiah that John expected. When John came, his message was one of of warning of the judgment that would come for those who didn't repent. In fact, as he prepared the way for the Messiah, he said this. He said, the axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. So John had expected the Messiah to come and to like, bring God's judgment on the religious hypocrites in Israel and like, overthrow Rome while he was at it. That's what he expected. He expected judgment and divine judgment. But Jesus wasn't doing that. All the report John is hearing about Jesus is how Jesus is doing all these acts of mercy, and he's healing people. And he's helping people who in need, he's performing miracles. And that's not the kind of Messiah that John had expected. And because of that, he's starting to doubt whether Jesus really is the one who is to come. Jesus is not acting in accordance with John's expectations. So as John sits in this dark, dank prison cell, he goes through this kind of dark night of the soul where he begins to question whether everything he thought he knew was right. Maybe you've had a similar experience where you've always been confident that Jesus is who he claims to be, that he is God and Savior. But then all of a sudden you experience something you go through something that brings about a period of doubt in your life. Maybe you're experiencing that right now. Like you're sitting here in church because that's what you do on Sunday morning. So you've always done on Sunday morning. And for most of your life you've been sure that you've believed the right things about Jesus. But maybe like this morning you're wrestling with something that's gone Wrong in your life, where God hasn't acted the way you thought He should. And because of that, you're sitting here and you're not sure what you believe anymore. If that's you this morning, like, first, like, we're glad you're here. I want you to even notice as we go through this passage, two things that I hope will be helpful for you. One, I want you to notice what John does with his doubt. And then second, I want you to notice how Jesus responds to that doubt. Or maybe, maybe you're here and you've never had this kind of doubt. Like you placed your faith in Jesus however long ago, and you've just never had a time of serious doubt in your life. And if that's you this morning, like I just hope I want you to be prepared that a time of doubt may come. Right? When something comes that knocks you off kilter and sends you into a season of doubting. And for you this morning, like, I want what we see from John and Jesus to be preparation for that time. But if that time comes, you have a way to respond. So the first thing we see in this passage, is what John does with his doubts. What he does, is he tells people who are close to him about them, and then he brings them to Jesus. Like, John does not try to hide his doubts. and like, So often I fear for us in the church, like we feels the need to walk in the church and act like we have it all put together. We don't have questions. We don't have doubts. We know all the right answers. We have to come in like on fire for Jesus, sold out for Jesus, like everything's got to be great. Because we feel that pressure, we don't feel free to admit when we're going through a season of doubt, when we're going through a season of questioning, when we're having a crisis of faith. But look... John the Baptist, right, who Jesus is going to call him, and it's the greatest of those ever born of women. Like that John the Baptist had a season of doubt. So We shouldn't be surprised or embarrassed if we go through something similar. Or maybe like John the Baptist is a good enough example for you. Listen to the word of one of the greatest preachers of the 19th century, C.H. Spurgeon. He said this, Some of us speaking for himself, who have preached the word for years have nevertheless been the subject of the most fearful and violent doubts. Add to the truth of the very gospel we have preached. Spurgeon, who's this all-time great pastor. He's not my pastor, Mount Rushmore. That was the thing. He went through these periods of deep doubt. And yet he was honest about it and he came through it. What's important is not avoiding doubt, but in responding to it the right way. And what we see from John, the right way to respond to doubt is is being honest about your doubt and then bringing it to Jesus. When we bring those doubts to Jesus, look how Jesus responds in verses 21 and 22. At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases sickness, and evil spirits, and he gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, Go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Jesus could have said, Go back and tell John, How dare you doubt me? He doesn't do that. Instead, he gives John's disciples an answer to bring back to John. He tells those disciples to tell John the blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. And Jesus chooses this list of things very intentionally. Because he knows that John is a man who knows his Bible. So Jesus knows that when John hears this list of things, John's mind will go to the book of Isaiah. In Isaiah 35 and Isaiah 61, there's these passages that very clearly point to the Messiah. That clearly say what the Messiah will be like when he comes. And so in Isaiah 35, we read, be strong. Do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution, and that's what John wants. Right? That's what John is expecting the Messiah to be. But Isaiah doesn't stop there. He continues. He will come to save you. Then, you notice this. This should sound familiar. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer. And the mute tongues shout for joy. Water will gush forth from the wilderness and streams in the desert. And Isaiah 61 says, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. And So by giving this list of things he has done, Jesus is making it as clear as he can to John. Like, I am the Messiah. Like, I am the one who is to come. I may not be the type of Messiah you expected, John. I may not be doing things the way that you would prefer or the way you thought they would happen. But I am fulfilling what the Old Testament says the Messiah would be. I am the one who is to come. And then Jesus concludes by saying, Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. And then saying that, Jesus is saying, I will not always do things the way you would expect. And that shouldn't surprise us. He is the all-knowing, all-wise God of the universe, and we are finite human beings. But for those who trust Him, those who do not let His unexpected methods cause them to stumble, they will be blessed by having placed their faith in Jesus. Here's what we learn from all this. I said before, like it's not wrong to have doubts. Doubts come for many Christians at various times. In fact, if you've never had a period of doubt, it may be an indication that you aren't asking the hard questions. And if you don't ask the hard questions, that can leave you vulnerable when the hard questions find you. And they will find you. Tim Keller puts it this way. A faith Without some doubts, it's like a human body with no antibodies in it. People who blithely go through life too busy or indifferent to ask the hard questions about why they believe as they do will find themselves defenseless against the experience of tragedy. A person's faith can collapse almost overnight if she failed over the years to listen patiently to her own doubts. Which should only be discarded after long reflection. It's like, don't hide your doubts. Don't push them down. Avoid them. Don't try to avoid answering the hard questions. Don't be embarrassed about your doubts. Having periods of doubt is not a sign that you are a weak Christian, it's a sign that you are intellectually honest. And you'll be stronger for having wrestled through your doubts. William Barclay says, If a man fights his way through his doubts to the conviction that Jesus Christ is Lord, he has attained to a certainty that the man who unthinkingly accepts things can never reach. What matters is not avoiding doubt, but responding to doubt in the right way. And John the Baptist modeled that right way for for us. He is open, He's honest, about his questions and his doubts, and he brings those doubts to Jesus. Now, of course, John had the advantage of being able to ask his question through his disciples directly to Jesus when Jesus was here on earth. But we're still able to bring our questions to Jesus in prayer. We trust that he hears us when we pray, that he will not be offended by our doubts. We see David do this over and over again in the Psalms. He's incredibly open and honest about his doubts and his disappointments with God. And he brings them directly to God in prayer. So we should, should not be shy to bring our doubts before God and Jesus as we pray. We can also bring our doubts to, to the body of Christ, right? to the church. Like one of the reasons God gathered us together in places like this as a body, He unifies us, One reason he does that is to strengthen and support and encourage, we can can strengthen support and encourage each other when we walk through these seasons of trial and doubt. And my hope and my prayer for us as a church is that we would continue to be the type of body where people feel free to confess their struggles. People from all walks of life can come and know that they can bring their doubts and they can receive encouragement and help and not judgment or indifference. Stepping into someone else's trials and difficulties is never easy. I'm definitely not great at it. But if we're going to take seriously the call to be the body of Christ, to be His body at the church, and to be like Christ to those around us, then we must be a people, who other people feel free to bring their hardships and their doubts to. The way we can support people if they walk through doubts is to do what Jesus did for John, which is to point them back to what Jesus has done. Jesus reminded John how he had given sight to the blind, how he had raised the dead, how he had preached good news to the poor. So as we seek to help people who who are walking through doubt, or if you're walking through doubt yourself, the way to help overcome that doubt is to remember who Jesus is and what He has done. So if you're here this morning and you're walking through a time of doubt right now, my hope, my prayer for you is that you would remember. That you would think back on all the ways that God has worked in your life over the years. That you would read God's Word and remember all that Jesus did for you on the cross. That you would remember all the stories you have heard about the way that God has worked in the lives of your brothers and your sisters. Or that you would go to someone here and you'd be honest with your doubts. And that they would be able to tell you stories of how God has worked in their life as an encouragement to you. And as you remember what God has done for you, as you hear what God has done for others, my parents that like those stories of God's goodness will begin the process of restoring your confidence and your faith in God. Not that it'll happen overnight, but that it'll be, begin the process. And that you'll see, right, that, that your doubt does not tarnish your image as a Christian. After John asks his question and Jesus gives his answer, then Jesus turns to the crowd and he talks to them about John. And here again we see how Jesus responds to John's doubts. He turns to the crowd and he could have said, like, Can you believe that John is doubting? Like, he baptized me, he saw the heavens open, he saw the Holy Spirit descend like a dove on me. And now he's wondering if I'm the one who is to come? How dare he? Like, what is wrong with him? But that's not how Jesus responds. Instead, We see his response in verses 24-28. After John's messengers left, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No. Those who wear expensive clothes and indulge in luxury are in palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. I tell you, more than a prophet, this is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare the way for you. I tell you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Despite the fact that John is going through this season of doubt, Jesus still says, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. If you ever need an indication that a season of doubt does not disqualify you from ministry, or that it does not tarnish your standing in Jesus' eyes, then surely this is it. As John walks through the season of doubt, Jesus does not dwell on his doubt. Instead, he remembers all that John's faith has caused John to do in the past. So again, if you're going through a season of doubt right now, or if you feel some lingering guilt over a season of doubt you've had in the past, let this be an encouragement to you. Because at the end of the day, it is not the strength of your faith that matters. It is the strength of him who you have placed your faith in that matters. Think of the father of the demon-possessed boy. He was desperate for his boy to be healed. And so he turns to Jesus and he says, if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus replies, if you can, everything is possible for one who believes. Do you remember how the boy father replies? I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. That's just a sliver of faith, like a sliver of belief. I believe. Help me help my unbelief. And that sliver of faith is enough for Jesus to heal the boy. Not because the father's faith was great but because the Father's faith was in the One who is great. So if you struggle through seasons of doubt, take heart. And Jesus will not abandon you because of your doubt. Jesus will stay beside you as you walk through hard times. It is not the strength of your faith that saves you, but the object of your faith, no matter how weak your faith may be in the moment. But we need to be careful. Because it's one thing to struggle with a season of doubt, and it's another thing to reject Jesus altogether. Look at verses 29 through 35 with me. All the people, even the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' words, acknowledged that God's way was right because they had been baptized by John. But the Pharisees and the experts in the law rejected God's purpose for themselves because they had not been baptized by John. Jesus went on to say, To what then can I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to each other. We played the pipe for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not cry. For John the Baptist came, neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say, He has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you say, He is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by all her children. Jesus is saying here, there's two ways to respond to the message of Jesus. There's the way of the tax collector who acknowledges his sin and in need of repentance and forgiveness Or, there's the way of the Pharisee. And the Pharisee is impossible to please. Jesus compares the Pharisee to petulant little children who won't be satisfied with any activity. Many of you have maybe had a child come to you and say, I'm bored. And so you give them like 40 options of things to do. And like they reject each one, one after the other. And like there's no pleasing them. That's what the Pharisees were like. John came preaching repentance, and they didn't like that message because it implied they had something to repent of. They didn't like being held to someone else's standard of righteousness. But then Jesus comes, and they reject him because he didn't live up to their standard of righteousness. He eats and he drinks and he spends time with tax collectors and sinners. The Pharisees didn't want to be held to someone else's standard of righteousness, but they want everyone else to meet their standard of righteousness. In the word of one commentator, what the Pharisees wanted, the God small enough to compromise and to pretend that their imperfect keeping of the law is adequate. They want a salvation small enough for their merits to earn. And that is still the way many people think about God. That they're good enough to earn their own salvation on their own merits. They don't need Jesus to die on a cross for them. They don't need to repent and ask forgiveness for their sins. They say, like, I'm maybe not quite perfect, but I'm good enough. After all, like, I'm far more righteous than many people around me. But Jesus has no time for that kind of thinking. Because Jesus knows that no one is actually good enough to earn forgiveness on their own. No one can earn God's favor based on their own good deeds. That is why Jesus came. Because He lived the perfect life that God requires. And that's why He is a friend to sinners. Because those who know they are sinners... No, they need the forgiveness that only Jesus can offer. And so, just let me ask this morning: Which response to Jesus have you chosen? The response of the Pharisee, or the response of the tax collector? Like, do you believe that you are righteous enough on your own, by your own effort? And if so, then like, you don't need Jesus. Then Jesus is no friend of yours because Jesus is a friend of sinners. And if that's what you've kind of been believing throughout your life, then I like just invite you right now right, to reconsider. There's no shame. That's what I believe for a long time. I believe that I was a good person. Like I'm more righteous, more well behaved than most people around me. So I figured God would let me into heaven based on my own good deeds, but it became clear. Right? The Bible became clear that like, there is no one who meets God's standard of righteousness. That we all sin, we all fall short of the glory of God. And like that hit me. Like I realized I've been living under the assumption that I was good enough to earn my way into heaven, but that it wasn't true. And so if that's you this morning, I would invite you to repent. To recognize that you aren't righteous enough to stand before God on your own. That you need a Savior. And I would invite you to trust that Jesus is that Savior. That He lived the perfect life that God demands and that you and I have failed to live. But that despite his perfect life, he died a sinner's death on the cross. And on the cross, Jesus, God treats Jesus as if he lived the sinful life you and I lived. So that by placing our faith in him, God treats us as if we had lived Jesus' sinless life. That is our only hope of salvation. Not our own righteousness, but Jesus' righteousness given to us. And what is utterly astounding it's that Jesus makes that righteous, righteousness available to us through his death and burial and resurrection. And so we're going to take communion in a minute. Right? This is what we remember as we take communion. Right? As we taste the bread, like we remember that as real as that bread is in our mouth, so, is the, so real is the fact that the Son of God became man and gave up his body for us that we may have eternal life. And as we taste the sweetness of the, of the grape juice, we remember the sweetness of having our sins forgiven because Jesus poured out his blood for us. We're going to take communion together in a few moments. But before we do that, I just want to give a couple moments to reflect. To, to reflect on our, on our need for Jesus. How we are lost without him. I wonder if I reflect on how precious it is that Jesus came to be a friend of sinners. Let's pray. Father, we we praise you for sending your Son Jesus, even though we are sinful, even though we have rebelled against you, even though we broke our Relationship with you, that you did not leave us in our sin, but you sent your Son to live a perfect life. Not just as an example for us, but then to come and to die for us on the cross, so that by believing in Him, our sins can be forgiven. And in these moments of quiet now, what do we just reflect? I want to precious gift that is. Jesus knows our every weakness, including our doubts, including our struggles. We take it to him in prayer. And this communion to take, right, is a promise that even though he knows our struggles, knows our trials, knows our failures, he still died for us. I invite you to open the bread portion and get that ready. The Lord Jesus on the night He was betrayed. He took bread. When He had given thanks, He broke it and said, This is My body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. Partake. we leave here today with that, that taste of bread and juice lingering in our mouths. I pray that it would, you would leave, it would remind you of all that Jesus did for you despite your doubts, despite your trials, despite your failures, that Jesus still died for you. Would you go remembering that you are dismissed?